Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley and it's been a minute, so thank you so much for being with us. So many stories, so many issues, so little time. The midterms are coming up in a hurry. And if the polls are to be believed, I can say I told you so. Are Republicans injecting race into some races across the country? Are black people going to stay home on election day? We'll talk about all that and Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. A letter on Ukraine has a lot of people upset and the New York Times has a scary look at life after climate change. So off we go. Wallet and pocketbook issues are the dominant themes on which these midterm elections will turn if the polls are to be believed. I told you some months ago that I didn't think the Democrats would pick up seats or even hold their slim majority based largely on the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade. Recent polling says rising prices, inflation, and fears of a recession are in fact the primary concerns, along with crime. Crime is a big deal, certainly in major cities across America. Both Democrats and Republicans share these concerns. GOP messaging linking Democrats to all these maladies has been effective. You know, sometimes you don't want to admit that your opposition does something right, but in this case, they do. They have linked the Democrats to all of these problems that the country has and essentially said the Democrats hasn't, haven't done anything about it. And of course, there is also the intense dislike of President Joe Biden. This is despite recent figures showing the nation's gross domestic product, for example, is increasing, inflation is leveling off, and unemployment remains low. For whatever reasons, Biden gets little or no credit for the good numbers, even among some Democrats. To top it off, Democratic messaging, again, I hate to say this, but Democratic messaging has been horrible. I know Americans in many cases could care less about what happens in the rest of the world, yet the fact is much of the developed world is looking at the United States with envy. While Americans complain, the rest of the world says, geez, America is the bellwether here. That would be because our numbers are better than theirs. This functional disconnect, this inability to see or even care about the rest of the world, gives incumbent and wannabe politicians the ability, for example, to continue to promote the myth that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Some are even saying in advance of the midterms that there must be some type of voter fraud if they lose on November 8th. What boggles my mind is the sheer number of elected officials and candidates who are prepared to accept and endorse many of the tenets of the right-wing lunatic fringe. I keep saying to myself, they can't really believe this stuff. They can't align themselves with the Proud Boys and Q, uh, Q, uh, QAnon, but they do. And some of them could well be elected. These are people whose lunacy encourages folks, like the guy who broke into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's house on the West Coast and cracked open her husband's head with a hammer. Yet there's always plausible deniability, isn't there? Still, make no mistake, this was an attempt to attack and murder the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Did America treat it as such? Well, 
I'll leave that to you to decide. In my mind, an attack like this is nothing less than an act of terror. And the guy walks in to the Pelosi house and says, where's Nancy? Where have we heard that before? Gee, January 6, 2021 springs immediately to mind. We should, however, step back and look at the macro in addition to the micro. We know very clearly what the American right does not want. But what do they actually want? Do they believe a country that promotes the notion of don't say gay is a nation that can progress beyond its own narrow prejudice? Can a nation that pimps hate for political gain actually remain a world leader, even in the short term? If the polls are correct, November 8th will provide the answer, and it will be yes on all counts. But history will judge the elected officials who do this and it will judge the people who put them in office. This brings us to another periodic and historic concern of the Democratic Party, the black vote. Year after year after year, election cycle after election cycle, black folks put people in office on all levels who we only see around election time. Time after time, black people are told about those who sacrifice their lives to assure the right to vote and well, they should be reminded. But therein, I hate to say this, therein lies the problem. The only time we talk to young people about this stuff is around election time. No wonder, and I mean no wonder, young black people vote in lesser numbers than their elders. Ironically, it's young people of all races that have benefited, for example, from Joe Biden's college loan forgiveness program currently stuck in the courts. I've harped for many years about one of the great failures of my generation. Not enough of us passed on the legacy of struggle that was passed to us many years ago. The result is a skeptical generation of black young adults who believe politics is for someone else, that voting has no impact on their daily lives, who come of age politically illiterate. And I don't want to make that sound as judgmental or as harsh as it may, but they become politically illiterate, ignorant, however you want to describe it. There is a disconnect between their lives and the politics that rule their lives. To many, the saga of Kanye West is more important than asking why the Democrats haven't worked harder to codify Roe v. Wade into federal law. Those who are politically engaged want a level of boldness in seeking solutions to the nation's problems that their elders aren't prepared to give. That's a hard truth. It really is. You know, because I'm one of the elders. But the bottom line is I know younger people want to see bold solutions to the nation's problems. And when they call for it, it's kind of like, shut up. Don't talk about that. We can't do that. But the fact of the matter is, we can. And what's interesting is the Republicans don't seem to have that same kind of generational divide that the Democrats do. And what about Republican efforts to once again 
cast people of color as the other. In their greed for power, it's easy for Republicans to portray Democrats, especially black Democrats, as somehow soft on crime. This racist dog whistle is easy to identify. Blacks are soft on crime because they commit the crimes. Now, that's not statistically true, but it's what people believe. And as many people have traded on in the past, what people believe in many cases trumps what actually is, trumps the facts. An old trope this is, but in times of rising crime, this comes into wide usage. And there are lots and lots of Republican wannabe office holders who are more than willing to use that particular piece, that particular trope, that particular lie. A political article recently described get out the vote efforts in Philadelphia's black neighborhoods. It rang a big bell with me because six years ago, I walked the streets of the city of brotherly love, talking mainly to black people, young and old. And I came to a few conclusions. One, there is, and I think there remains, a divide between young and old about the efficacy of voting. There's also the perception that Democrats, in particular, only come around at election time, as I mentioned earlier, and rarely otherwise. Ironically, my experience was that young people have this perception even when their elected officials are black. Think about that for a minute. Because many of these uh, young people are in cities that are governed by black elected officials. I said it then, and I say it now. Without an energized black vote, the Democrats will lose their advantage in both houses of Congress. And that is the result of doing business as usual. Up next, Elon Musk takes over Twitter, fires a bunch of people, and hints that many banned folks will be coming back. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Elon Musk describes himself as a free speech absolutist. Now, under certain circumstances, I might describe myself as a free speech absolutist. I'm not quite sure, however, what it means when it comes from Elon Musk, but last week as he purchased Twitter for a reported $44 billion, his first moves were to fire several top executives, including the one who made the decision to ban Donald Trump. Musk seems to be saying he's prepared to allow toxic speech and misinformation. Now, I'm not, said it before, say it again, I am not one to ban speech or even people who abuse their right to use it. However, I believe that there should be a price paid for speech that leads to violence. I'm not entirely certain Elon Musk believes the same. No matter, I use Twitter once in a blue moon. I find policy positions and even political thought as expressed on the site to be boring and lazy on the part of many of the participants. Not all, 
but many. When I read stories about politicians doing something or saying something or even being banned on Twitter, I'm thinking to myself, like, really? Is that the level of discourse that you choose to engage in? Is that your go-to site to communicate with the people that might be interested in what you have to say? Twitter? Really? Now, I know it's the preferred method of communication for people all over the globe. I'm acknowledging that. It's just not my preferred method. Ideally, I prefer face-to-face communication. I've been told that makes me old and resistant to change, and they're probably right about that. I also have little time for drama that surrounded Musk's takeover. First he wanted it, then he didn't want it, then he wanted it again. Of course, when he wanted it again, he was kind of pushed by the threat of lawsuits. Too tiresome, way too tiresome for the likes of me. If people have a problem with how Elon Musk runs Twitter, maybe they could try another social media network. There are a few out there. And maybe you might find something that is better aligned with your thought processes or encourages critical thinking. God forbid there's a social media network or website or however you want to describe it that encourages critical thinking. You're not going to find it with Twitter. Up next, the New York Times has a scary article about life after climate change. Will a bleak future spur action in the present? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. The New York Times has an interesting deep dive into the future of climate change. Some of you may remember the old days when climate deniers tried to debunk the whole reality of global warming. They've now been exposed as outliers. In fact, making the world aware of the dangers from unlimited burning of fossil fuels has come a long way. Not far enough, maybe, but the fight against global warming has advanced from where it was even a decade ago. And yet, to hold global warming at bay will take more, much more, according to this Times article. Changes in transportation, agriculture, energy, housing, and industry will all have to be transformed, all of it, in the future. Therein lies the rub. And again, something I've said before, people don't like to make life-altering changes in the name of making things better on the planet after they're gone. We can talk all that mess about children being our future and how we're mortgaging the future for our grandkids and the rest of that, but when it comes to something like climate change and when it comes in the form of altering one's lifestyle so that their grandkids and great-grandkids might have a livable future on the planet. It's like not so fast. How much is it going to cost? What do we have to do? No, I'm not getting rid of my gasoline car. 
Not going to do it. The piece seems to believe there's enough concern to make the changes possible. Not likely, but possible. I'm not going to get too deep into hedges here, but suffice to say politics, in particular the politics of the so-called global north, will determine the speed at which the necessary changes will in fact occur. Consider this for a moment. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, there are about 3 billion people on the planet who live in places highly vulnerable, their words, to climate change. Ask yourself how many of them will move as animals are already moving toward the poles, that is, northward, toward the global north. If even tens of millions of people decide to seek safety away from heat waves, wildfires, flooding, and other climate-related events, it would drastically alter the political landscape. The notion of secure borders could well become moot. Imagine the political consequences of such changes. The world could very well be a different place with radically different priorities. But still, will it be that rich nations are able to adapt to climate change while the global South and its people suffer? And perhaps most important, will people around the world be prepared to make the changes that are necessary to keep the planet alive? That really is the issue here. And I mean, it's a really, really big issue. And finally, a letter to President Biden urging him to seek some type of negotiated settlement to end the war in Ukraine has drawn fierce pushback. That's because it comes from some Democratic members of Congress, not the Republicans who have already begun to question future aid to Ukraine. At the center of the controversy is Washington State Congresswoman Jamila Jayapal. Now, we talked about her not that long ago in terms of some of the hassles and death threats she'd been getting. Well, Congresswoman Jayapal coordinated this letter and was instrumental in its release after being delayed for months. Originally, the letter was drafted to coincide with Russian President Putin's threatening remarks about the use of nuclear weapons. The timing of the letter's release, coming a good while after Putin's remarks, made it appear that Democrats, at least some Democrats, progressive Democrats no less, were siding with Republicans and scaling back the U.S. commitment to the government of Ukrainian President Zelensky. All this, of course, couldn't have come at a worse time. Democrats are seen as fighting among themselves less than two weeks before the midterm elections. Now Democrats, moderates and progressives, are scrambling to reaffirm their support for Ukraine. The real issue is this, no matter how either political party tries to spin it, is there any room at all for a negotiated settlement of this war, or will it continue and cost the lives of many, many more Ukrainians? Now, Ukraine has made its position very, very clear. What they want is a removal of Russian troops from their land. And they consider their land, by the way, to include Crimea, 
which the Russians occupied eight years ago. They want it all back. The Russians, of course, are saying, no, we're not giving you anything. Now, those are two polar opposite positions, obviously. Is there some middle ground? Or will this war just continue and continue and continue? Republicans in the Congress are already saying, and I told you a while ago this was going to come up, they're already saying, well, it's time to scale back, cut back on military aid to Ukraine. Never mind that they seem to be doing extremely well with the level of military aid they're currently getting. The Republicans say, we got other things to worry about. Now, that's not something that should become surprising to anyone. There was a time at which the West in particular, in general, I should say, and America in particular, would get tired of the war, would want something else to deal with. Kanye West, for example. And say, hey, we've expended about as much money on this war and on the Ukrainians as is possible. And into that toxic rhetoric comes progressive members of Congress calling for a negotiated settlement. Now, there will be, at some point, a negotiated settlement. The only question is, on whose terms? Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.